Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Welcome, Frank King. Give it up. Yes, and 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 I must tell you, as Thor is, often I am uh, uh, depressed, and uh, I'll tell you why. Because I've made sort of a middle age discovery. I don't know if you can see this, but I've lost some hair. Can you see that? Anybody know the medical term for this? It's hair peninsula. Can you see? Can you? <laughs> it's called generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. And I came close enough to dying by suicide. I realized that I could speak on suicide prevention. What dream would you pursue if you knew for a fact that you had absolutely nothing to lose? And so I did my first TEDx at 52. And I came very close in 2010 to taking my own life. Well, I, I, you know, I, I've been depressed off and on all my life. And, and I've been depressed at some of the best times in my life. And I always worry, what's gonna happen if I'm depressed at the worst time in my life? And I found out. Hey Frank, I didn't tell you that you were the reason I decided to stick around. There you were putting a face to what I was feeling. I will do my best to help you get the resources you need. Thanks very much. Frank, how are you, sir? Oh, you know, uh, living a nightmare, baby. <laughs> Surviving the, apoc- the apocalypse that we never thought yes. would come, but it's, it's, uh, it's, up- it's upon us. Yes, I was talking to somebody yesterday, and I said, you know, in the last recession, and then I thought, man, I didn't think I'd ever utter that phrase, the last recession. Because <laughs> that means we have another one. <laughs> and I have yes. a cat. This is Lily. She's my... Personal assistant. <laughs> and why not? So, Frank, we met on LinkedIn. Correct. I was um, in both impressed and obviously attracted to your profile. Sounds like a dating site, doesn't it? But <laughs> yeah, that's right. Turn ons, turn offs. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, uh, you know, I'm passionate about about well, all people. I'm particularly passionate about young people in their future, especially as a as a father now. Um, so that kind of ties into my concerns about the whole digital agenda and screen time and this kind of thing. Sure. In addition, I've done a lot of work to prevent veteran suicide, um, being a veteran myself. Yeah, you know what, Chris? Um, I'm coaching a gentleman to uh, speak who was in the Falklands War. He was on a ship that was hit, sank in 20 minutes. And he is living with PTSD and, you know, suicide attempts and maybe somebody, I know you have a lot of young people that watch, you know, aspiring soldiers, sailors, airmen. It'd be nice probably to get the perspective of somebody who's been there, done that, and is living with, uh, you know, he's successfully living with it, raising money for other people in the same situation by doing ultra- um, sort of extreme fundraising events, you know, crawling over mountains, you know, that kind of stuff. So if, if you'd like, when we get done, I'd be give, glad to give you his contact information because it's, yeah. it's an interesting story. He's Scottish, though, so if you don't like the Scots, you probably shouldn't do that. 
Oh, my life's simple because I don't like anybody. I see. Um, no, but no, we've had a um, um, good friend of mine, Russ, was is a Falklands veteran. The chap I spoke to this morning was um, an SAS trooper that was both in the Falklands and also in the infamous Iranian embassy siege, which was a oh boy. massive thing in, in, in English um, military history. Um, so, yeah. By all means, put us in touch. That would be great. Okay. Um, but you, you, you have a fascinating history, Frank. Um, is it five TED talks you've done now? Yeah, I'm working on uh, pigeon number six, seven, and eight actually right now. Uh, by the way, two of them in England, two of them in London. Ah, brilliant. Kings, King something on the Thames, and Folkestone. F-O-L-K-E-S-T-O-N. I think it's somewhere near London as well. Yeah, Folkestone is kind of Kent Dover way and Kingston on Thames, I think is the... That's it. That's the one. I just applied for that one last week. Yeah. Oh, wow. January, January 2021. Mm. So um, that's two things you do that are impressive because getting on stage to do a TEDx, a lot of people wouldn't want to do that. But to get on stage, <laughs> to get on stage as a comedian and make people laugh is a is a very brave thing. Again, is that does that come naturally to you? Oh yes, um, I was uh, born funny. Actually, my second TEDx talk is called "Born Funny." Um, the it runs in my family. My mom was very funny. My sister's very funny. Uh, I. I told my first joke in what's called the U.S. called the fourth grade, and then uh, my senior year, last year of public school, I had a talent show, and I did stand-up. First person to ever do stand-up, and I won the talent show and decided, okay, I'm going to do this for a living. I have no idea how, but I'm going to. Brilliant. See, I think I'm hilarious. It's just no nobody else does. <laughs> well, we call that reverse imposter syndrome. You know, you're funny. You're just waiting for the rest of the world to tumble to it, you know, to realize. I'm going to remember that reverse imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. Yeah, you know, because people with imposter syndrome are afraid they're going to be found out, you know, and, and you don't deserve a PhD. And I'm just the reverse. I'm just, you know, I'm famous. It's just waiting for everybody to figure that out. <laughs> so let's go back to your your story, because to to do the things you've done and to contribute in the way that you are now, I'm, I'm guessing you've had a fair bit of, uh, can we say ups and downs o over the years or challenges to, to surmount? Yes, actually uh, depression and suicide run in my family. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I, I screamed for days. And in the last recession, uh, after we lost everything in a bankruptcy, I learned what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Uh, spoiler alert, I didn't pull the trigger. Um, the a friend of mine came up after one of my keynote speeches and said, hey man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? And hey man, could you try to sound a little less disappointed? <laughs> uh, yeah, so it was in the family. Maybe you did pull the trigger, but you, you, you're just a rubbish shot. You know, if I had a scar down the side of my head from that, I could charge $2,500 more for my speech. Um, the... I live with two mental illnesses, major depressive disorder, better known as depression, and then something called chronic suicidal ideation, which is much more rare. 
it means for me and people in my tribe, the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for whatever. A couple of years ago, my car broke down. I had three thoughts, get it fixed, find new, and I could just kill myself. That's chronic suicidal ideation. And there may be somebody watching your podcast, maybe more than one somebody who has those symptoms. And generally, most people don't know it has a name. And they just figure they're some kind of freak because of the way their brain works. And when I do a keynote and I mention that, at least one person, sometimes two or three, come up afterwards and they're just, I mean, I've had people weeping to find out they're not alone. That it, it has a name and there are other people who have it. So that's my job is to get up and tell the story, you know, and be vulnerable and give them permission to give voice to those things. So it could be a very valuable point to 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 ask you frank especially on behalf of the veterans community because we you know we we do try to look after our own yeah some of us are just frankly frankly thank some, you some of us uh, uh are frankly just not very helpful um yeah um so you know, he- do, why do Obviously, every story is individual and it's different, but is there a generalization we can get for people that don't understand? Why would somebody commit suicide? Well, the question I get asked generally is, why did so-and-so want to die? And the answer is, chances are, in most cases, that person did not want to die. I didn't want to die. I just wanted to stop the pain. Same reason people drink or you know, using other substances to kill the pain, obviously with less dire consequence, but it's all about killing that pain. Um, and it's difficult for neurotypical or neuronormal people to understand how, how even that would be a reason to end your life. But it's, in my case, it's clinical depression. I mean, I was born with it, I live with it. And the suicide thoughts, same thing, I've gotten used to it. Uh, the best thing you can do for somebody in that situation is not not to tell them to pull themselves up by their bootstrap, you know, turn that frown upside down. Um, best thing you can do is listen. Just let them talk. And because oftentimes just airing it out is palliative. It helps that. And don't make suggestions. You know, you, you should do this and you should do that. Just just listen. What I teach, by the way, Chris, is I teach signs and symptoms of depression, thoughts of suicide what to do, what not to do, what to say, what not to say. Reason is, eight out of 10 people who are thinking about suicide are ambivalent. They want somebody to interrupt. Nine out of 10 give hints in the last week leading up to it uh, because they want somebody to notice and go, hey, what's wrong? So the majority of people want somebody to step in and just ask that difficult question, you know, uh, and, and, and be persistent. They go, no, nothing's wrong. No, something is wrong. And I teach my audience things you can look for uh, with the person that would be hints that they are living like somebody who lets their personal hygiene go if they've been put together pretty well for years and all of a sudden you know hair's a little dirty clothes aren't quite as clean that's a pretty good indicator a good there's a good chance that they are living with depression or let's say they have trouble getting up in the morning but kind of rally in the afternoon another sign that they may, ha- may be having trouble with depression yeah suicide uh, talking about death and dying, Googling death and dying. It appears as a theme in their artwork, uh, collecting the means, of course, to die. Uh, getting their affairs in order, giving away prized possessions because they want to make sure they go to the people they want them to go to. Uh, here's a dangerous one. They've been depressed forever. 
and you notice, wow, they're happy for no apparent reason. It may be because they've chosen time, place, method, and they know the pain is coming to an end, so they're happy. And you're happy because they're happy, thank God. And then they're gone. So, yeah. to the and other- young people, it's uh, the the numbers are rising. Uh, major depressive disorder and suicide uh, are rising, at least in the U.S. among uh, young people age uh, 15 to 24. And I guess you don't need to be Einstein to outline some of the reasons there, do we? I'm I'm, I'm guessing the pressure of social media. Yep. The, the lack of proper human relationships, not not these relationships. <laughs> yeah. The um, actually, um, so last Saturday I read said that high school kids. When we were in high school, we hung out at the gym, we hung out at the mall, you know, face to face. And I think since 2012, the amount of FaceTime in person for teenagers has dropped 40 percent. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole lot less of that face-to-face, you know, interaction. Like I said, it's like this. And the pressures on young people. There's a lot of tick boxing now, isn't there? And grades to make and, and decisions. Um... Yeah, I, I, you know, it's the scores that you need to get on standardized tests now in the U.S. to get into college are far higher than when I was in high school. So it, it almost becomes the Hunger Games. There's only so many spots. So you want to graduate as high as you can in your class with the best grade point average to get into the best school. And if you have, if you have graduate school in mind, like, you know, dentist, veterinarian, MBA, whatever. Again, there's, there's very few slots. So again, it becomes, you know, it's this competition constantly from the, you know, from middle school on, which we didn't, you know, when I was a kid, that, that wasn't. Yeah, school was easy. Nobody was anxious in my class that I was aware of. Do you think the sort of the parents must have a, an, a they must have you know a, a, an effect in this uh, equation? Um, yes, I've got a friend who's doing a TEDx talk on uh, young people and mental illness and treatment, and he he treated adults, he treated kids. They had great success with the adults, but not much success with the kids. And so he did a huge study, like 28,000 people. And what he discovered was, you can't just treat the kid. You need to treat the entire family. You need to get everybody in the same room and get everybody on the same page and everybody commits to whatever changes you're going to make. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. So you're right. You need, the parents need to be present and buy in to whatever is going on with the therapy for the young people. Yeah. And this is something... They're all home now. So they... <laughs> yeah, now'd be a good time to start because everybody's stuck at home. Yes. I'm guessing um you know society's the way that it's developed, you've got people working probably in careers that they don't really want to do. I mean, I, I know some people love to sit behind a desk, but I think when you get to sort of middle age and you realize you that's all you've done you've sat behind a desk and you haven't traveled the world you haven't thrown yourself out of airplanes you haven't you know yeah. bought yourself a horse and that sort of thing and then of course alcohol comes in the equation as the kind of you know the mat the mask 
and then of course you're trying to bring children into the world so so all this is just going going downwards it means they're not getting the attention that they deserve and they're not getting parents who nurture them because they're too busy dealing with their own um, their own headspace. Would that be a fair thing to say? Yes, absolutely. Uh, in a couple of ways. Uh, baby boomers, my age, I'm 63, so I'm right in the middle of the U.S. baby boom generation. And the people who are older than I um, protested the Vietnam War. You know, the Summer of Love and Woodstock and Haight-Ashbury. Those people were going to change the world. And so just like you said, you look back at 63, 68 years old, and you've sat behind a desk all your life. You never did get around to changing the world. It can be very depressing and debilitating. Uh, the other thing is happening is eight out of 10 people who die by suicide in the US now are men. And one reason is age 45 to 54, mostly Caucasian. And these are guys who had a good blue collar job in a union shop manufacturing you know good wages and then everybody thinks the jobs went overseas but only 15 percent of the manufacturing jobs in the u.s went overseas everything else went to ai and robotics so you got a 50 year old guy who identifies and his identity is wrapped around his job now he doesn't have a job who is he you know, who am I? I one day you're this you know the union steward in the shop and you're making good money the next day you're unemployed because a robot took your gig so that's, they call them deaths of despair. And that's when the alcohol substance use disorder, you know, kicks in to kill the pain. And, you know, it's how long is it going to take them to get back to that level of wages? And, you know, and, uh, you know having people look up to you because of the ball, it's very difficult. So construction, mining, excavation, top three, I think, suicide, uh, occupations at risk of suicide in the U.S. at this point. Plus, we're sold this narrative, aren't we? And it's it's particularly noticeable in the US with the kind of American dream thing. You know, you, yeah. go, you go to work, you work hard for the man your whole life, and it, it's all going to be good. And of course, it's hard to step out of that narrative and realise that even when you have nothing, if you can smile and and appreciate the nature and be happy that you you have a one life and this is kind of obviously the way that I think on a, a daily basis or I I certainly wouldn't be here anymore <laughs> but people get very stuck in the narrative don't they they worry too much about what other people think they, they get very self-conscious that they're not providing or or that they haven't got the right car or um they, 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 and it's hard to it's hard to wake up, to shake yourself out of that, um, I'm guessing. And to, and to admit it, I've got a client, TEDx coaching client, who's a dentist, or was a dentist, bought a practice, built it up after, uh, built it up over 14 months. And then there was um, something happened, a lawsuit and something else, and it crashed and burned. And because she'd always been super successful in life, she could not bear letting the world know she'd failed. So she found herself standing on a stool with a noose around her neck. What saved her was her phone rang, her cell phone. So she picks it up. It's one of her clients, one of her dental clients who had an emergency, had broken a tooth or something. Would she come to the office? And, and so she goes, okay, 
takes a noose off, gets off the stool, and then realized, you know, and she's still around today. But but because she could not admit, you know, that that dream she was living had crashed and burned. She just was too embarrassed. She figured the stigma of failing like that would be, you know, so she was going to kill herself. So, and you know, there's stigma surrounding depression, stigma surrounding thoughts of suicide. You know, people are embarrassed. So, yes. But yeah, in the American dream, I think this generation of young people, the first one in the history of the United States where they're not as well off as the previous generation. Because my sister and I are more well off than my mom and dad were. And then the next generation was, you know, the uh, Gen Xers were better off than we were. But this time around, I think it's you know, the standard of living is dropping for these kids. So, Frank, what would we say to someone who's listening to this, who's been been feeling the suicidal suicidal thoughts? What what would your advice to them be? What what must they do, or what what possibly they should do? Well, uh, I would get evaluated by a mental health professional to find out if it's depression, schizoaffective disorder, or even bipolar. And I would have a full physical workup. Sometimes, not many times, but occasionally, whatever's happening to you mentally is actually a manifestation of something going on physically. Like your body's not producing a particular hormone or vitamin or mineral that you would normally have in an average human being. But if you're physically sound, then get a mental evaluation. And then if medication is indicated, they now have a DNA cheek swab test. They take your DNA and they test it against psychotropic drugs and they find the best antidepressant or anti-anxiety, the one that will work best with your metabolism. So you don't get a lot of that experimentation, you know, go on, taper off, go on, taper off. Um, I would, if you could share with close friends and family, you're having these struggles, you need to surround yourself with people who are gonna love you regardless and are not gonna judge you. That's why when I do a, a keynote, I talk about the suicide prevention lifeline. I'm sure they have them in, in uh, Great Britain. You call up when you're suicidal. Yeah. I go, look, if you're suicidal, call a uh, you know, hotline. If you're just having a really bad day, call a crazy person. And I put my cell phone number up because, you know, you call me and you're having that struggle. You don't have to explain anything to me. I get it. And I'm not going to judge. I'm just going to listen and, you know, and co-sign whatever, you know, BS you're going through. But yeah, I would get evaluated. I would, if medication's indicated, it's not always the case, but I would, you know, begin a medication. And let, let your family, if you, if you can, let, let as many people know as you can that you can trust that you're having this struggle. Yeah. So, because silence kills. You know, that's, uh, and you know, people with mental illness, good actors, they covered up. I covered it up for decades. And you don't want to be a burden to anybody, you know, because telling somebody, well, I'm not going to feel any better. They're going to feel worse. So, why should I burden them with that? And I guess it's important to, if you can, remember that pain is only temporary you're not going to be feeling like this maybe next week or the next month and certainly not the next year um you'll be looking back at your life going oh my gosh i can't believe i was that unwell um yeah that close well uh, but you know i gotta tell you there were days in my life when i couldn't see that far I, my my goal only goal was to get out of bed put one foot in front of the other until it's time to go back to bed I, was, I mean, that's my goal in life, <laughs> just to make it through the day. So you got to take it one day at a time, like an alcoholic. Take it one day at a time. And, and I teach people tricks to do that. I go, look, make a to-do list, like six things. It's called gamification. Six things on your to-do list. 
As soon as you scratch off number six, you can go back to bed and binge watch Netflix. I don't care if it's three in the afternoon and broad daylight, but that's the game. You do all six of those things because, Chris, movement forward is something of an antidote to anxiety, depression, thoughts of suicide. You can just get up and go going. And the way to do that is make it a game. I, when I go to the gym, my deal is it's 25 minutes by car. If I go to the gym, I can go in and do one rep of one exercise, turn around and go home. I've never done that. I've always gone in, you know, drug myself in, and end up saying an hour, hour and a half. I mean, I'm glad I did. But the game is, if I want to turn around after one rep, that gets me to the gym. It's called gamification. It's, uh, and I think for people with mental illness, thoughts of suicide, a schedule is very important. Go to bed at the same time, get up at the same time, eat your meals roughly the same time, meditate. I meditate twice a day. It's a MP3, you know, it takes you down, brings you back up. Um, limit your media exposure, dear God. <laughs> Don't leave the 24-7 news thing on all the time because uh, the news is so bad. Um, yeah, my, I haven't watched the news for 20, 20 years. Um, and, uh, yeah. I'd recommend that to any anybody turn that where you don't turn the switch off. That shows show my age now. And we used to turn the switch like that. Like that. <laughs> Use that thing. It's got a red button on it for, for a reason, and I don't mean turning it on. Well, we haven't had a TV in 10 years. We have I you know, I, I watch Netflix and Prime, you know, and I pick my TV shows. I love I love cop procedurals, you know, CSI and Law and Order and you know, those kind of things. Um and for news, I tell people in this pandemic, you know, just, just listen to whatever the governor or whatever your top official in your county or your precinct or whatever, and uh, your mayor, because they're right there on the ground. They know what's happening here. Doesn't matter what's happening anywhere else. You know, what affects our lives is what's happening here in Oregon and in, in Eugene, where we live. The rest of it, we got no control over, but, you know, listen to the local officials who uh, have, a, you know, have a little skin in the game. So, Frank, can we talk about the um, from media to, to the digital, um, the digital addiction? I see that you speak about it. Is, is this mm -hmm. a ref reference to to mobile phones or, or cell phones? Smartphones. Yeah, I think uh, I didn't realize there's a feature on your phone that can tell you every week how much screen time you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think the way to get a handle on smartphone use is to just look, you know, turn it on and look at last week and see how many hours and decide for yourself, is that too much? Is that too little? Is that, is that healthy? I mean, then you, until you have that information, you really don't know how long you've been on. Uh, I, I, I didn't understand bullying on the internet until I got in a situation where the world thought I had done something horrible and the, and the trolls came after me and ended up having to change my home phone number and deactivate through social media accounts. And then I, I have a whole new appreciation for young people who can live with that kind of storm. Because, you know, the people that came after me, I'll never, I'll never see, never meet. But if you're a teenager and it's the people you go to school with every day, I mean, I, I'm not sure I could handle that. Uh, you know, going because you, when you and I were kids, maybe I'm speaking out of school, but when you and I were kids, when I left school, I left the bully behind. Nowadays, kids carry the bully home in their pocket. 
You know, and if you got in a fight in the locker room when I was a kid, it was just me and the other kid. And there wasn't a video of, the toilet, you know, of him shoving my face in the toilet. Um, but nowadays, everybody's got, you know, everybody's got a smartphone, everybody's got a video camera, and, you know, it's all over the, and then, then, it, and then it goes viral, and it's all over the world. And I just, the pressures that these kids are under, this, you know, this 24-7 social media, you know. Do you, I've got young friends who get really upset. He came after me on Twitter. I said, I get it. I get it. Yeah, it's it's quite strange to me, Frank, because I swear that I would only I only have social media in my life because I made a promise to myself as one of my life goals to make it as an author. Yeah. And my authors obviously got into to going into public speaking and and youtubing hence our hence our chat now and and all this stuff is it's the the necessities of of this career but it does make me smile when maybe i'm being a bit i'm not seeing the full picture but it does make me smile when i see friends that they don't even um they don't even have a they don't even what I mean is they don't have a business and yet they've yeah. got a Twitter and Instagram a Facebook or this. And for me, I don't think I'm important enough to have all of that. Um, but not- for a business nowadays, for business nowadays, author, speaker, you know, it's almost a necessity now. But to your point, Chris, I've said this many times. If I won the lottery tomorrow, and it was like stupid money, like millions. The first thing I would do is I would deactivate every social media account that I've got. I would turn in my smartphone. I get old fashioned flip phone, you know, same phone number, but I would just get a flip phone that did nothing but make phone calls. And, and people would go, wow, you disappeared. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still living in the same house, but I just don't have any social media presence. I would give it up like that. Mm. If I didn't have to have it for, you know, SEO and, you know, social media, because, you know, nowadays, the number of connections you have, say, on LinkedIn, I got 17,500 or whatever. Um, that's a metric. Young people look at that and they, woo, 17,500. You know, that's, you know, and I had a young friend of mine say to me, look, Frank, if I saw a hot young woman on Facebook, she had 500 friends. And there's a woman who wasn't quite as good looking but she had 5,000 friends. I'm asking out the young woman because that's a metric now, mm. how popular you are on these platforms. It's like when you and I were kids, I don't know if this is what, what it was like for you in school, but I was always envious of the guys in school who dated the cheerleaders, you know, the really attractive women, you know, and, and cheerleaders dated the, you know, the, the football or soccer players, you know, the star athletes. That was kind of the metric when I was a kid. You know, how far were you up that food chain? But nowadays it's connections, you know, it's followers. It's, you know, how many shares did you get on? Um, I've got a young friend who does some video work for me and he figured out the TikTok algorithm, that little, you know, video service, whatever. I don't have TikTok, but it's a video thing. He figured out the algorithm. He got 65,000 um, likes and shares in the first hour. And, and he put his phone number in the video somewhere <laughs> and his phone crashed. But you know, he's a, he's he's a hero now because I mean, who 
to pull off something like that. that many people to be that kind of an influencer, I guess is what they call it. Yes, I'm, I'm very uh, fortunate. I've got a team of young people that, that um, offer their services to support my, at least the YouTube channel. And, um, and I really am the old man. I mean, I, they, they, I, I need these guys. <laughs> but yeah, it is, me too. But they come out of expressions that they just, it puts a unique take on life that I, like I never thought of. They'll say, hey, Chris, you're up for 30K subs soon. I'm like, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's you know, what, whatever yeah. your subscription on YouTube, obviously we do this thing because we want subscribers, but it's the way that that shouldn't be a thing in your life. Let, let me worry about that. <laughs> They mean it, well, obviously. They mean it well, very well-meaning, of, of course, but it's it's the fact that these are the things that young people take an interest in now. and um, These are the metrics, because they know with 30,000 subscribers, you can monetize your YouTube channel, because the more subscribers you have, the better you better shot you have at attracting advertisers. The pre-roll, the post-roll, the mid-roll, you know, on your... Yeah, I've learned a whole new vocabulary from these kids. Yes. You know, it's it's... And, and when I coach people, I'm 63, Chris. When I coach speakers my age, I mean, it's it's like pushing a rock up a hill. <laughs> because, you know, I mentioned SEO. What's SEO? Uh, you know, <laughs> you have a Facebook page. Yeah, I think I started one. Oh, God. How about a podcast? Do you have a podcast? I... Yeah, I see... Yeah. Um... I see people my age with really good podcasts and their views are just awful and yeah. they, they can present well or, or they can interact well. They, they've got the setup, they've got the equipment and, but it's because they lack that, um, that basic knowledge of how you operate a platform and the things you need to do on, on that particular platform to get yourself noticed and to get your, to get your views up and it can be something you know it can be something silly just by the way you phrase the title of your video and yeah um and you've got to be aware of what other people are doing in their titles and just by being aware of that you can get your you know you can get your own video to rank even higher and that's just without really doing anything um so yeah i i, I get what you're saying there yeah and then people my age speakers my age really have you know we, we didn't i didn't grow up with these things they didn't grow but so i'm not a native user of these platforms mm. so i've learned a lot from the young people on putting these things together you know it's um i mean i i, I have to drag my clients kicking and screaming into a podcast because you've got to have a podcast everybody's got a podcast come on that's the thing again when i when i invite people on my podcast who are my age not always but very often they think it's an interview. You're not a conversation. <laughs> yeah, and it's hard to get that kind of jive going, you know, that back yeah. to and from thing. And or they, they go away confused because they're like, but he talked in it. <laughs> you know, they think yeah. they've, they've been used to watching the, the interviews on, on the BBC, you see, where they, they, the host asks a question, then sits and shuts up. Yeah. And um 
thing I love about podcasting is it gets you as far away as that old school media that hasn't really done our country uh, very much good. Um, uh, guy, guy I talked to last night, young guy, youngish, probably 30, 30-ish. We were talking about that. And he said, Frank, what I do is when I do my podcast, if I have somebody a little older on, like you said, who's expecting to you know the interview. He goes, I start, to count, I start recording from the time they come on. It takes me about 10 minutes to relax them enough, you know, because they're waiting for the questions. It takes about 10 minutes to get it to where it's a conversation. And then they forget about the whole interview idea. But a good solid 10 minutes before they're actually having human conversation, not just talking points. So then he said, I just lop off the first 10 minutes, edit that off and start right there with a, you know, where we're just having a chat. So, How, um, have you done many sort of comedy stores and that sort of thing? You know, I hold the record, Chris, for the longest nonstop comedy club road trip ever. 2,629 nights in a row nonstop. That's seven years and change. And I, I opened I opened up and I worked with Rosie O'Donnell and Ellen DeGeneres and Dana Carvey, Kevin Nealon, uh, Adam Sandler, Seinfeld, Ron White, you know, all the comics, American comics have gone on to bigger and better things. So, but yeah, it was comedy clubs for seven years. My wife and I, she came along for the ride. We just toured the country for seven years doing clubs. You should be able to get on Joe Rog Rogan's podcast with that kind of record, shouldn't you? He, he, I should. I have. I've been trying to get on Rogan's podcast because that's because that's the kind of podcast appearance that'll help make your podcast. Yeah, if you can get on his podcast, and he does he does long form like I don't know two three hours. It's amazing. Yeah, I love I I, I love those kind of long form chats, and it's uh, you obviously don't. It's great for him because he's put ten years to get there, so he can do that. When you're trying to work tweak the, the YouTube algorithm all the time, the long form thing in the early days is probably not going to help you too much because yeah, not many, not many people have got three hours just to go, all oh, right, okay, let's listen or watch or whatever <laughs> it might be. Yeah, of course, the nice thing about podcasts is you don't have to listen, you don't have to listen live so you can you know take it with you, fire it up when you're cutting the grass or whatever you're doing. And uh, but yeah, he is definitely the master of of long form podcast. Who are your favorite comedians, Frank? Jimmy Carr. Mm. From England. Yeah. You know Jimmy? He's very dry. Oh God. He's got that baby face. He looks so sweet and he is so so he's smart. It's political, but it's funny, but it's it's mean, but it's he's amazing to watch. Um yeah, I just, I, somebody turned me on to him and said, look, there's a YouTube video, the world's most offensive joke. So I went on and he comes out and he goes, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to get a little bit offensive in the beginning and I'm going to crank it up a notch every joke until somebody in the audience screams, you know, something I've seen like, oh, for blank's sake. And he does it. It's in, in, in a notch each time. It's, and there's a guy in the U.S., um, uh, Bill Burr, who is uh, kind of like, could be Jimmy's older, meaner brother. Um, one of those guys, when he's doing comedy, it looks like he's coming off the top of his head. It's amazing to watch his, his, his technique. But he would swear he just thought of it. 
he's like that when he's on a podcast though he's like that in an interview he's just yeah. funny everything he says is funny um he's also a master at, at pointing out the elephant in the room polit- from a political perspective yeah. without without actually sounding like he buys into that you know it's my favorite Bill Burr. My mom said, um, got mad at me, said, why can't you be more like your dad? I said, okay, screw you, I'm leaving. That's when I bought into Bill Burr. That joke right there, I thought, okay, (laughs) I'm in. And I've loved him ever since. And the the TEDx is, that's quite an institution now, isn't it? Yeah, they're pretty much every middle size of the major city in the world has at least one, sometimes two or three. And, and you can't you can't just be any old person to get on there, obviously. That they 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 they're looking for an inspirational kind of person with a with a, a new take on on their particular thing. And also yeah. they have their set criteria of how they want it presented. Am I correct? Yes, and oftentimes there's a theme to the entire event. So you, they want to make sure your talk fits in the theme. And it needs to be an idea where, you know, that's worth spreading is their slogan. And the audience has to learn something. They always ask you when you audition, okay, so what are you going to teach our audience? What are the takeaways, action items? So each one has to have, you know, has to have an impact. As you, when you get to the end, you got to go, okay, that's, that's, my talk essentially and here's what you learn and here's what you can do with it so mm-hmm. and that's my job when i'm coaching people is make sure the idea is good and solid and then help them with um the the learning objectives takeaways what the audience is going to learn that's really important to the people who pick the speakers where do you find the motivation to sit down and if you if you've got to pitch a speech to the the TEDx manager, you know, it's to me, it's just a oh god, right, sit down. I've got enough stuff going on in my my life. <laughs> it is. I I kind of know roughly like what I talk about. I'd want to sort of turn the tables to help people to understand that, for example, addiction is not necessarily the curse that that we've all kind of been led to believe. Well, it is for some people, but. Yeah. No, not it's not for all of us. So I kind of um, sat down with a, a an associate of mine, and we kind of wrote that pitch and we sent it off. We <laughs> didn't even hear anything back, which was, um, you know, I won't say it's downheartening because I'm old enough and wise enough now to know you got to put get your pitch good, like you said, and you don't just send it to one person; you send it to Ooh. all of them. Yeah, I got my first one on the first try, and I, my last one took me 16 tries to get it. Um, but but my title and subtitle was good enough that I, I didn't I didn't have to audition. They just said, "Look, because that's all you really need for a TEDx pitch: title, subtitle, uh, short description, like 150 words, then 150 words why you're the person who should be doing it, and then some learning objectives." And the title of mine was "Mental Health and the Orgasm." Treat your depression single-handedly. And it was funny. And it had some facts in it about the healthy aspects of those, you know, behaviors. <clears throat> and they said, look, you don't have to audition. You're on. 
<laughs> okay. So that's what I do with my clients is I try to make the, uh, whatever the pitch is really attractive, you know, hook them somehow. The title is a, leaves a question in their mind. So they have to read the subtitle to figure out what's going on. And if you get into the subtitle, then it's like, oh, no, <laughs> set the hook. And because uh, they get 100 or 200 applications. They're, I mean, they're going through them. They just throw them in no pile because they got a lot to go through. So you got to make them stop and go, I got I to gotta figure out what all this is about. And how do you deal with the the stage nerves or the stage fright? Is there anything, do you have a particular ritual or is it maybe not something you experience? I'm generally more comfortable on stage than I'm in real life. The thing about the TEDx though, it's recorded and you really can't stop. You know, in a live show, you can stop and say to the audience, where was I? Hmm. In a TEDx, you're not... So what I do is I write uh, an outline on my hand, just big ideas, uh, Roman number one, two, three, and four, kind of where the transitions are in the talk. And if you watch my talks carefully, you'll see me go, okay, we covered this, we covered this. I'll be like this. Look at my hand. And the audience starts to laugh. And I turn it toward them, and they can see the writing. And I go, it's Palm Pilot. Big laugh. I go, you know the problem with this? I'm constantly downloading to the sink. Oh, but that's how I beat the nerves is I know I've got the outline on my hand if I need it. Because that's the big fear is you're going to get to something and forget what came next. And I tell my students, that's where it breaks down. Always practice the transitions from one thought to the next. Because if it's going to break down, if you're going to lose your train of thought, it's going to be right there when you're you know, going to the next item. Mm. So practice the transitions to make sure you know what the segues are to each item. That's why I do it on my hand. <laughs> it's a, you know, I've always got it with me if I, if I need it. Frank, it's been absolutely such a pleasure to speak to you. I love talking with one of my Amer American brothers or sisters. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's a very special uh, connection that, that, that we've got. That I'm not even gonna try and put that cross-Atlantic uh, family thing into words, but thank you so much. Um, oh, you're welcome. Is well, my wife is, wife is half British. Oh, bad luck. Her, I know. Her mom was British. Her dad worked at the U.S. Embassy after the Second World War. He's a Marine, and they met when he was over there serving, you know, Garden Embassy in uh, London. Is she, is she English? I, my mother-in-law is English, and I guess my wife is half English. Oh, half English, yeah. yeah. Oh, yep. yeah. Frank, is there anything you'd like to promote, or can you let people know where they can get hold of you if they, if they need any support or help, or they want, want to um, employ your services or your speaking? Obviously, I'll yeah. put all the links below the YouTube video as well. Uh, my website is thementalhealthcomedian.com. And if you go there, um, two other people and I have, are writing a series of four books on men's mental health, kind of like chicken soup for the soul, sort of, you know, 12 stories of guys in each book. Mm. And if you go to the mentalhealthcomedian.com, put in an email address, I voiced, I voiced the books. I just finished voicing the one for Audible, volume one. And there's a free MP3 download of the entire unabridged four hours of the men's mental health book. So you get a free you know, listen to that uh, men's mental health book. And my phone number's there, my email address is there, yeah. And like I said, if you're suicidal, call the hotline. If you're just having a really bad day, call me.
Oh, or we can zoom so you don't have to pay the charges, you know. Yeah. What a what a kind uh, and thoughtful offer. So, Frank, thank you so much. Let's let's speak again. Yes, sir. And to our friends at home who are listening or watching, much love and respect to you all. Thanks for tuning in for another edition of the Bought the T-shirt podcast. And uh, see you soon. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username Chris Thrall. Instagram Chris dot through. Thank you.